Turn, if you would, to John chapter 4. We're going to continue to look at this amazing passage of Jesus and the woman at the well. Now, as you're turning there, I have a bottle of water in my hand. And and obviously, water is important. But I think most kids in here probably like me. When you were a kid, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe kids in here love drinking water. I hated drinking water when I was a kid. I still don't enjoy water, but I, I'll drink it, especially if it's got lots of caffeine in it and it's hot. Um, but uh, I, water is not necessarily something, you know, we enjoy drinking as a kid. Your mom's always telling you, drink more water, drink more water, drink more water. Why? Because water obviously is, is vital. Without water, we die. You cannot go much longer than three days without any water before you die. I read an interesting story this week from, this happened back in the summer of 2012. So last summer there was a a young man, 22 years old, named Kane Gorney. This was in England. I'm not sure what part of England, but it was in the the newspaper there in London. And this young man named Kane Gorney, he had been a healthy young man. He was a runner. He was, as they would say, a football player. He was a a soccer player. Um, He was a runner and a football player. and, And he got ill with a tumor. And went into the hospital to have this tumor dealt with. Life-saving surgery. The, the problem was the tumor. And so he goes into the hospital, has life-saving surgery. But something went terribly wrong with his medical care. Because at one point while he was there in the hospital, he called the police station. And told the police station, that he told the police on the other end of the phone that he was dying of thirst. That he hadn't been given any water. And uh, he also called his mother at the time who rushed over to the hospital. By the time she got there, he, was, he had been sedated because he had started going crazy. And one of the signs of, of lack of hydration is, is it affects you mentally. And uh, they had apparently not given him a, a drip or anything else because uh, apparently they thought he was too agitated or whatever. But they had, they had sedated him and put him, put him in another room. By the time his mother got to him, she said something was seriously wrong. And sure enough, he had passed away. From dehydration. Now he'd gone to the hospital to have life saving surgery to remove a tumor, and he died of thirst in the hospital simply because the medical professionals failed to give him what he needed most, and that was water. Yes, he needed the life saving surgery, but if he doesn't just get the water, he's not going to live. And so I was thinking about that. Uh, story as I was going through the passage this week, just thinking about this woman, and she has, uh, she has a lot of needs in her life. She's a, she, it becomes pretty apparent that she's a needy woman, but her greatest need is that she needs the fountain of living water. She needs living water uh, to spring up within her, welling up to eternal life. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read all the way down to verse uh, 26 like we did last week. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Please stand, if you would, as we read this passage from God's Word. John chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading of your word and add your blessing now to the preaching of the word. We thank you and praise you for your word, that it does not return void. So I ask now that you'd grant me the grace to speak um, accurately and to speak rightly according to your word. And Lord, help us to hear accurately and hear rightly. Um, and, and Father, and in doing so, may we, may we grow in our understanding and our knowledge of and our desire for Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this is the second part, really, of a two-part sermon. I I really wanted them to go together, but there was no way I could fit them into one sermon. So I'm going to give a little bit of a recap now so that you'll, um, if those who were not here last week um, can sort of be up to speed. You'll remember that the Pharisees were upset. They were already upset at John the Baptist and his ministry. And now that Jesus is baptizing more people than John is, they're upset about Jesus' ministry as well. So Jesus heads north to Galilee, not, to, not because he's scared of these Pharisees, but because it's not his time yet. There will be a time when he, he lays down his life, gives himself over to the Pharisees and their, their anger and their cruelty. But right now he heads north to Galilee, where his, his home region, where he's from, and that's really going to be the base of his ministry. But in order to get there up north, He's got to go through Samaria. Now, I explained last week when it says he had to go through Samaria, that's referring to Jesus' divine 
uh, impetus, what's driving him. He has to go through Samaria because the Father is sending him into Samaria. It's not because he has to geographically. The Jews had a path. They had a pattern of going around Samaria because they didn't want to go through the land of the unclean Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews equally. And so the Jews would go across the Jordan, up the Transjordan, back across the Jordan to come into Galilee. Even though it added much time to their journey, it was worth it to them to avoid the unclean Samaritans. But Jesus goes into the unclean. He goes into the place that's avoided by the religious types of his day. He goes into Samaria because he has a divine mandate to do so. That's why he had to go. Now at noon, he stops at Jacob's well in Sychar. He sends his disciples the half-mile journey into town to get some supplies. And at that time, a woman is coming to the well, a Samaritan woman. And as the passage reveals, as we see in the whole of the passage, she's an immoral Samaritan woman who probably, due to her shame, even in her own town, is an outcast. And so she's coming alone. She's coming at noon, which is an odd time to come to the well. Normally the women would come early in the morning or in the evening. Now there is some dispute. Uh, if, if your footnote says that she came at a different time, there is some dispute whether or not John is using Roman time here or the traditional Jewish way of telling time here. And I believe from the context and also from other evidence that, that he is using the Jewish method of telling time here. So this would be noon. In the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day when she's coming out to um, the well. So she's trying to avoid all the women who go together in the morning or in the evening. And she's there. She expects to show up at the well when no one else is there. No one else is supposed to be there, but someone is there. And of course, it's Jesus. He's there at the time and at the place that his father told him to be there. And he's there. She's gone out to meet her physical needs so that she can hide away from the world. But Jesus is there to reveal a much deeper need that she has, a spiritual need. Jesus then shatters all the religious and racial and social taboos of the day by talking to a woman, first of all, which was not, you didn't just go talk to strange women in public during those days. He was talking to a woman, first of all. He's talking to a Samaritan woman, one of these unclean outsider women. And he's talking to an immoral Samaritan woman. And then on top of that, he's asking for a drink from her bucket, from her jar. This is astounding. Okay, and she's astounded by this. She questions why he would even do such a thing. And and then Jesus turns the tables on her and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now this just further baffles this woman. She's, she's kind of blown away by this whole situation. The first thing is that he's a stranger. And he's a hated stranger because he's a, he's a Jewish stranger. And Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. But now he's become sort of an, an intriguing character. He, he baffles her mind. And uh, she's solely, and she's still at this point in the passage, uh, thinking about the physical, the temporal, the material. And she's perhaps even taken aback a little bit by his bold claims and And so she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. To which Jesus responds, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now she's she's even more baffled. Jesus has gone from a a hated stranger to an intriguing character... And so she says, and I'm not sure what her tone was here, so she's being sarcastic or she's genuinely 
asking this question, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But her mind is still on the physical, the temporal, the material. She doesn't understand what Jesus is wanting to give her. You see, Jesus wants her to be a blessed person. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So he's going to now cause her to see her deadly spiritual thirst. She is dying from spiritual dehydration. He's going to have to remove the tumor of her sin and plant in her a well of ever-springing living water. So with his word, he's going to do some heart surgery on here. And so basically today I have six observations this morning from the remainder of this passage regarding this back and forth between Jesus and the woman. Three observations about what Jesus does, three observations about what the woman does. And I want us to be kind of like students in, in medical school. And I don't know what they call it. I actually went to try to figure out what this is called. But you see it on the TV shows where the medical students sit up in some sort of room where they observe the surgery going on. So that's us this morning. We're, we're up in the gallery, if you will. And we're watching the great physician do his work. So the first thing I want us to observe this morning is the conviction of sin produced by Jesus. Observe the conviction of sin produced by Jesus. This woman is very content at this point to keep the conversation on the surface level. She's just fine talking with this interesting and intriguing Jewish man about some mysterious living water. But as we've already noted, she is still focused on the material when she says that, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Notice that her motives in that last verse, in verse 15, notice that her motives are still fleshly and selfish. She doesn't want to be physically thirsty any longer. She doesn't want to have to make the half-mile trek to the well any longer. She's open, in, open to listening to this interesting fellow who claims to be greater than Jacob so long as he makes her life easier, so long as he fixes her problems. You see, she's a consumer. And that's the flavor of our day as well. People are interested in Jesus so long as he's just a product they can consume that'll make life better. That'll make the things they want better to be better. Ultimately, she, she wants a, a fix to her life situation. She wants a little self-help therapeutic water. Notice with me that she doesn't want to have to come here is what she says. I don't want to have to come here. It's not just that she's lazy and doesn't want to walk the half mile to get the water. She doesn't want to come here because this is the place of her shame. She's here out of necessity. Remember, she is an outcast among the outcasts. Her physical thirst is driving her here, but her shame drives her here at noon. Ultimately, this isn't where she wants to be. If she can find someone or something that will allow her to hide away in her sin and hide away in her shame, she'll take it. How many people come to Jesus on a surface level like that, like this woman this morning saying, Jesus, give me what you got so that life will be easier for me. So that I don't have to deal with life's junk any longer. So that money isn't a problem any longer. So that I don't have to fight with my wife any longer or whatever it might be. People are willing to listen to Jesus so long as he's just some mysterious peddler of self-help water that meets the demands of our temporal needs. That's what the world, that's the kind of Jesus the world wants. 
So many are still on the level of this woman, on the level she's on right here in this passage, at this moment in the passage, and they never get any farther. And thus so many people are in, the, in, in need of the same thing this woman was in need of. Namely, they need a, the word of God to penetrate their heart, to convict them of sin, and reveal a deeper, greater thirst that can only be quenched by living water. So Jesus begins to do some spiritual heart surgery here. He produces immediate conviction in her heart and in her soul when he says, verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. Come where? Come here. The place she doesn't want to be. Come here. The spot of her shame. Come here. She is hoping that she can get something from Jesus that will allow her not to be seen anymore. Not to have to come here. Something to permit her to hide away in her sin and not experience shame. But Jesus is working to expose her sin by asking her to get her husband. But now she's got a problem. For Jesus, as he's about to reveal, knows that she's a five-time divorcee who is living in an extramarital adulterous relationship at the moment. She can't come here with that guy. She can't come here with her boyfriend, especially since he's not her husband. Her sin and her shame will be out in the open. What's she to do? She's cornered. Well, that that brings me to my next observation. And I think it's how most people react when the conviction of Jesus' words begin to fall upon them. My next observation is simply this. Observe the shrewd evasion attempted by the woman. The woman answered him, I have no husband. That was her answer. She's hoping that will do it. I'm just going to answer it. I have no husband. And she's right. Well, sort of. She's giving a half-truth designed to cover up her sin. Though she's not currently married to the man she's living with, she has been married. She's had a husband five times over. Kind of like me when I'm, when I'm a, I have a fear of getting a shot. Any kind of needle that is intended to penetrate my body, freaks me out. And I have a fear of, of getting a shot, and I, I can kind of pump myself up, but when, when that syringe comes with that needle on the front of it, with, with the much-needed medicine that I need or whatever the situation is, and it's getting ready to penetrate my skin, I, I begin to squirm, and the, the big nurse lady says, Settle down! You're acting like a child! And I say, I know! And I squirm, and I want to get away because I know the prick of that needle is going to be painful. Even though I need what it has to give to me. And this woman tries to wiggle away from Jesus' request. When a sinner's heart begins to be exposed, he or she quickly begins an attempt to mask the sin that is starting to come to light. Even after we're saved, we still don't like the the sharp point of Jesus' convicting words. We try to evade conviction, don't we? We we try to come up with with some sort of rationalization. We rationalize our sin. We we explain our sin away. We try to get off on a technicality. We explain away our sin with half-truths designed to cover up whole lies. The conversation's been all pleasant up to this point. It's all been surface level. But now that Christ's words begin to go beyond the surface and prick her heart, she evades. He's gone from a hated stranger to an intriguing character to now a a rather intrusive individual. This is where most people want to get out of the conversation, isn't it? When Jesus' words begin to sting a little bit. 
It's at this point that people begin to, to try some clever, evasive maneuvers. And in her case, you probably think she's off the hook. I mean, how can, can he know, right? He's an outsider. He's a Jew just stopping by. Now she can just drop the whole thing and go home away from this place, away from here, back to her life. But we know that our Lord loves his people too much to allow that to happen. So the next observation is our Lord moves from her evasion and begins to confront her sin. Observe the loving confrontation initiated by Jesus. You see, our Lord Jesus doesn't just convict us of sin. He gets specific and lovingly confronts sin. He didn't want her to go home just feeling guilty. He wanted her to be absolutely crushed over her sin so that in godly sorrow she would repent of her sin and turn to him, the giver of living water. Confronting sin causes sorrow. It does. It reminds you of a passage where Paul is writing to the, to the church in Corinth. Paul has had to do some pretty confrontational ministry with his flock in Corinth. He says this regarding a previous letter that he wrote. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That conviction of sin that she felt, if Jesus would have just left her with that and said, go on home, he would have left her with a worldly grief that leads to death. But he wants this woman to be his, he wants, he wants to save her. He, he is part of his family. He wants to bring her, he sees a lost sheep, and so he's not going to leave her at that. He wants her to feel a guilt that crushes her, a sorrow that crushes her so that she'll repent. All men feel sorrow and guilt over their sin to a degree, for all men have a conscience. But conviction over sin must lead to that sin being confronted. That's how the heart is prepared for repentance. So as she attempts to spin away from the truth with half-truths, he moves in with sovereign and devastatingly specific confrontation of her sin. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, "'You are right in saying I have no husband.'" For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus knows the hearts of all men, as John 2.25 taught us a while back as we were going through this series. Jesus needs no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knows what is in man. Nothing is hidden from his sight. But notice how, notice how gentle the good shepherd is with his lost sheep. He doesn't, he doesn't jump up from the side of the well, put his finger in his face and say, I caught you, you lying tramp. See how deep that well is? You're going to hell, lady. No, he, he doesn't do that. He's a loving physician, a careful physician. I, I love his gentle words. You're right in saying I have no husband. I'll give you credit there. You're right. Oh, but you left out the fact that you've been married five times. Oh, and that you're living with your boyfriend. He's, he's direct, yet he's gentle. He is a gentle surgeon. 
He's going to gently yet candidly expose the fact that she is a lawbreaker and therefore has a desperate need, a desperate sickness that no amount of physical water or hiding away will fix. The sovereign knowledge of Jesus, friends, ought to be a devastating thing for us to consider. No sin is a secret to Jesus. The sin we hide from our friends, from our family, from our spouse, from our co-workers, from our pastor, from our church family, is not hidden before the eyes of Christ. And he confronts it with his perfect law, exposing our sinful cancer and our need for healing, our need for salvation. But when our sin is exposed, too often we still don't run to the only remedy to cure us. We look for some other way that we can deal with it. Surely some sort of ritual, some sort of religious exercise. So the next thing I want you to observe about the woman is observe the religious confusion of the woman. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now what's happening here? This is a very odd shift in the conversation. I think every person who's ever read this passage, when you get to here, you go, okay, what's happening here with all of a sudden it becomes a discussion about worship? And Jesus never brings it back to the adultery. He just keeps talking about worship. So, so what's happening here? Basically, there are a couple of options. And I'll tell you up front that I'm not in the majority on my view of this. But I'll tell you what the options are. Number one is that she's trying to change the subject from her sin to some sort of theological controversy so that she can avoid or evade Jesus' convicting words. That's what most commentators will believe. Some of my hero preachers out there will say that that's what's happening here. She's simply evading Jesus' words, trying to change the subject. That she's putting up a smoke screen or a red herring. And that Jesus chooses to go along with her. And perhaps that is what's happening here. Perhaps. Matter of fact, that does happen a lot. I mean, think about it. When a person is confronted with their sin, almost always they'll try to change the subject. Well, why are there so many denominations then? What does it have to do with your adultery? What does it have to do with your sin? Or does, doesn't, doesn't the Bible contradict itself in places? Or doesn't the Bible contradict science? Or how come there's so much evil in the world? Some sort of, some sort of theological, philosophical rabbit trail to get you to go down so you're no longer talking about the sin that they're convicted of. And that happens all the time. But that may be what's happening here. Okay, and I think it's good for us to be prepared with apologetic responses for such questions. But usually those type of questions are an attempt to pivot the conversation away from the pricking of the conscience brought about by God's word to get us into some sort of intellectual or religious arm wrestling match. And so we always got to come back to the gospel. Now that may be what's happening, but, but I'm not sure and I don't think so. I think there's much more here than just an attempt to avoid Jesus' words and change the subject. I want us to look at it a little bit closer. Now, like I said, I'm in the minority here in what I believe about the remainder of this section here, but I have a couple of heavy hitters on my side, including Calvin and MacArthur and some others. So I'm, I'm in good company in the minority here. Let's look at it a little bit closer. After Jesus says what he says and the sins of her heart have been laid bare, she responds, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I want you to think that this response here is coming from a woman who through her religious background, understood the unique role of a prophet. 
Everyone knew and acknowledged that prophets were spokespersons for God himself. In her view now, he's gone from a hated stranger to an intriguing character to an intrusive individual and now to a prophet, a prophet of God. By saying, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, she's doing two things. Number one, she's acknowledging that God is speaking through Jesus. I want you to be mindful of that. When she calls him a prophet, she's saying, okay, I now believe that the words that are coming out of your mouth are from a higher source. That God is speaking through you. And number two, she's admitting that the things he has said are true. She doesn't try to deny his words about the five husbands or her current live-in boyfriend. She, in essence, is saying, you're right. You know me. I can't hide. Therefore, you must be speaking on behalf of God. Now, if I'm right in that assessment, then I think her next question about worship is a genuine desire to inquire from this prophet of God, this man who is speaking on behalf of God about worship, so that she can go make sure she's got her worship down right, so she can practice religion in the right way to deal with this problem she has in her life. How does someone react when they recognize that Jesus is a prophet or he's got a prophetic word? Remember how Nathaniel reacted in John chapter 1? Okay, after, after his heart was, was laid bare by Jesus, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now her reaction isn't quite as dramatic as, as Nathaniel's, but I think that in light of her admission that Jesus is a prophet of God, her next question in verse 20 is a very genuine question. When she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Her sin has been exposed. She knows that God has spoken to her, and so she wants to figure out what she can do to deal with it. Now, she's still only on the surface level. You see, she's still thinking about religion and ritual. Okay, what do I do then? Worship here, worship there, what, what, what do I do? It's kind of like when you're in a conversation with someone and they admit that their life is a mess or that they've been involved in sinful behavior. And what do they say? Yeah, yeah, I know. I need to get back in church. You ever gotten that response from someone? Yeah, I know. I really just need to get back in church. That's what she's doing here. Uh, I, okay, okay, you're right. You're a prophet. Okay, I, where? Where do I go to church? Here, there, where do I go? She thinks the way to fix her obvious sin problem is simply to get her external religion right. She's still thinking on the surface level, religion, ritual, what must I do? Now what's more is we need to remember what worship was all about, and is still all about, by the way. What worship was all about, both to the Jewish and the Samaritan people, worship centered around what? Sacrifice. Worship centered around sacrifice. Sacrifice for what? For sin. So when she's asking where to worship, she's not saying, hey, where do I go sing good songs to God? Where do I go get some really hard rock and worship? She wants to know where do I go deal with my sin? Here or there? What can I do? By the way, worship is still centered around sacrifice, but the finished once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So when she asks where to worship, she's wanting to figure out what she can do, where she can go to fix her problem. 
What do I do? How do I get this right? Do I, where do I need to go? Here, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? And people are still the same way today. Even after their sin has been revealed, even after the sinner has admitted his sin, so often we try to figure out what we can do to fix it. Okay, what denomination do I join? What church do I go to? I get baptized? Do I need to walk that out and raise my hand? Just tell me, what do I need to do to fix my problem? So Jesus is about to rock her world here. He's about to cause a seismic spiritual shift in her life from ritual and religion to spirit and truth. So the next thing I want us to observe is to observe the glorious revelation of Jesus. Now let me say that we're only going to be able to touch on the remainder of these verses today. We'll pick up things here next week. So actually, yes, it's a three-part sermon. It may become a four-part sermon. So I apologize in advance. But really what I want to focus on is mainly just the words worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? There's been a lot written about that. Worship in spirit and truth. If that's what we're supposed to, if that's how we're supposed to worship, then we need to know what that means. We need to spend a whole sermon just on that. That's next week. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming, he says. The old way of doing things, the old um, wineskin of worship is, is fading away. The new covenant is being inaugurated and the new covenant worship is not relegated to a geographical location but happens wherever God's children reside and her question has sort of become irrelevant then. But he does say, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He doesn't say that she's right and that Jerusalem meant nothing. For Samaritans were indeed wrong about God's chosen place for worship. But there were many Jews in Jerusalem at the temple who were not true worshipers either. The day was coming and now was here when worship would be forever changed. For the old covenant worship had pointed to the one who would change it all, the Savior. Salvation is from the Jews. He is saying that the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish sacrifices, the Jewish rituals, they all pointed to the sacrificial lamb of God who was coming through the line of David, the king of the Jews, the suffering servant of God, and that the time for his arrival was at hand. The hour is coming, and Jesus says, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The old wineskins of old covenant worship were passing away And the new was on the scene, for Jesus was now here. But one thing wasn't changing, as I mentioned earlier. Both Jewish religion and now New Covenant Christian religion is centered around sacrifice. Sacrifice. The new community of New Covenant believers, true Christian worship is centered around the sacrifice of this one Jesus, the prophet who speaks to this woman. He is the son of God and he was on a journey toward the cross, a trek toward a sacrificial death that would tear the temple curtain in two, forever changing the way God's people would worship. And his resurrection would demonstrate that the final sacrifice had been accepted and that the atoning blood had been applied. And so now those who are true worshipers of the Father are worshipers filled with the gifted Holy Spirit of God. And they are worshiping the Son of God who is truth incarnate. And the Father is drawing such worshipers to himself even this day. Verse 23, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit And in truth, God is the seeker. 
and he's seeking worshipers. Next week, I want to spend the whole sermon, like I said, just talking about that. If we can get that in one sermon. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? But for now, let's return to the woman and her response. And we see a much softer heart now. She's ready to hear from God's anointed one. She's ready to believe the truth that he would bring. Verse 25, the woman said, said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So my final observation is simply this. Observe the Christ-centered submission of the woman. Observe the Christ-centered submission of the woman. She knows that there's a promised one coming. She knows there's anointed one of God coming. One whom God would send that through this one to come, all of her questions would be answered. All the longings of her heart would be satisfied. The dilemma of her sin would be dealt with. Her confusion over worship would be cleared up. And she would see the truth and the truth would set her free. She's ready to submit to that one, to the Christ. And so Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And her life will never be the same. Jesus has now gone from hated stranger to an intriguing character to an intrusive individual, to prophet of God, to Messiah, the anointed one of God, the long-awaited Christ, her Lord, and she has found the fount of living water. Or I should say the fount of living water has found her. And she has finally found satisfaction. If you look a little bit beyond the verses we read today in verse 28, she runs off to the villas to tell everyone that she thinks she's found the Christ. You know what she leaves At the well, the jar she came with in the first place. Now, John's a smart writer. We don't have to have that detail. He gives us that detail for a reason. Her life has been changed. Her original purpose is for coming to a well. Those have been obliterated. She's found the fount of living water. So she leaves that jar, which was symbolic of all that old life, as she runs back to the Samaritan village. Friends, who is Jesus to you today? Is he a stranger? An intriguing guy? Maybe a bit prying in your life, a little bit intrusive? Is he a prophet? A good man? If there's any text in the scripture that goes along with C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, and Lord, it's this one. If he's just all those other things to you, then it's not sufficient. My friends... You need to know the real Jesus, for he is the Messiah, God's chosen one, king of the Jews, the suffering servant, come to live a righteous life on behalf of his church and die for the sins of his church. I don't know what's ailing you spiritually this morning. But if you've come to try to get your life better, but not drink of the fount of living water, you're just like that poor fellow at the very beginning of the sermon who had his cancer dealt with, but what he needed was a drink of water. And he perished. You need Christ this morning. More than you need your bank account fixed, or your marriage fixed, or your relationships, or your school, or whatever else. More than any of that, you need Christ this morning. The fount of living water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and give you glory for Jesus our Savior. And Jesus, we want to acknowledge you this morning that apart from you, we're dead. No matter what 
fixes we bring about into our life, if we get more organized in our business practices, more organized in our family practices, and we get religion down well, but we're not drinking from the fount of living water, then, then Lord, we're just, we're lost. I pray, Father, there be nobody here playing religious games, trying to figure out if it's on this mountain or that mountain. But instead, that they'd understand it's not about rituals and religions, it's about a relationship with you, a real, genuine relationship with you, sealed by the Holy Spirit, experienced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who continues to bubble up in us and exalt Christ in us. So there should be a difference about us. We should be walking around with springs of living water so evident that the world looks at us and says, what are you drinking? What's going on? Father, I pray that we wouldn't go after the empty cisterns of this world that hold no water, but continually throughout our Christian walk come back to the living water and drink of it daily. So, Father, I pray this morning that you'd move in this place as you see fit to draw sinners unto yourself. Lord, stir us up with a spirit of confession as you've pricked our hearts. But we know what hidden sins we have. They're not hidden to us. We know what we're sitting at the well trying to cover up. Words we've used, attitudes we've had, things we've watched on TV, on the internet, time we've wasted, whatever it might be. No one else in here knows about any of it except Jesus. So Father, lay our hearts bare, cause us to repent, cause us to turn back to the fount of living water, cause us to do what First John tells us to do. If we confess our sins, we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need cleansing every day. So we pray that this final time of singing and response would be magnifying, glorifying to you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.